Some of you years ago, if you're old enough like me, you remember that wonderful, amazing documentary series. It was on American public broadcasting system. If you have cable TV in those days, you were able to get PBS from the States. You saw it in its first run. And over the years, I've watched it probably four or five times from end to end in completion. I'm talking about that. I just thought it was a it set a new high watermark for historical documentary series. It was Ken Burns' Civil War. Anybody remember Ken Burns' Civil War? I'm all by myself. <laughs> all right, I'm speaking to a group of barbarians this morning, those of you at home. What you must do is go home and you must find Ken Burns' Civil War. In fact, I will lend you my copies and a DVD and you can watch them. The point in Ken Burns' Civil War is it was just a wonderful new style documentary series. It had narrators, but much of the series, because the Civil War, the American Civil War took place in the 1860s when photography was already invented. So they would have pictures of people like Julia Ward Howe there that were alive and active in all of the important events at the time, but they also had their written letters and correspondence. So wonderful actors like Morgan Freeman and Sam Watterson and others, they would voice the different people. They would have their pictures, and then when they would read in their own words, their thoughts, their correspondence. But the thing that amazed me was not only the story of the Civil War and the fight for freedom for the American slaves, emancipation and so forth. It was a profound, moving story. It was the most traumatic event in the lives of the American uh, Republic, and it's the only time where the United States was more divided and divisive than it actually is even today. But what I was amazed by as they read these correspondence with different actors wonderfully was how literate the people were. And I'm not just talking about Frederick Douglass, the great freed slave who became an abolitionist. Of course, the wordsmith of Abraham Lincoln but even the common soldiers, their letters home to their families, it was almost to our ears like hearing somebody read Shakespeare. Their language, their vocabulary was incredible. And these were ordinary people. But they had a deep knowledge, for instance, of literary works. It was reflected in their writings. But what I found throughout, from president to common soldier in the field is that these people knew their Bibles. Both sides of the conflict justified their actions based on the Bible. The Bible was the common understanding. It was the moral foundation of their lives. And whether they believed it and lived by it or didn't, they certainly all knew it. For instance, President Lincoln, you sometimes see him quoted a house divided against itself cannot stand. That famous speech about the republic can't survive with free states and slave states. And many modern people are entirely ignorant that President Lincoln was quoting Jesus' words, quoting Scripture. They think Abraham Lincoln made it up out of thin air. But these people, their thoughts and their language reflected the truths of the Bible to a level that we don't even understand any longer. This morning, we are looking at the teaching of God's Word that uses the imagery of the vineyard, the fruit of the vine, to teach powerful biblical lessons. Like sheep and shepherds, the vineyard is a picture that teaches many lessons throughout Scripture. 
And today's lesson is a hard one because it speaks of sin and the consequence of sin and God's hatred of sin and the wrath of God. Now, in Scripture, this teaching uses the imagery of the vineyard. In fact, in numerous places in the Old Testament, the wrath of God is pictured as a cup of strong wine that the nations experiencing the wrath of God are like people who have drunk too much wine and are inebriated and stumbling and staggering and coming to a bad end as the wrath of God is visited upon them. Now, in that time of national tragedy and conflict, that image became very strong for the people of the United States. Julia Ward Howe, I have her picture up there, and a picture of from the Atlantic Monthly where lyrics and words that she wrote to an old hymn became very popular during that time. Now, the hymn, my wife claims that she remembers it from her younger days. It began all the way back in the time of the Great Awakening in the U.S., in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And it had a number of names, but it was often called, uh, Say, Brother, Won't You Join Me? I don't recall singing that in church. But the line continues, Say, Brother, Won't You Join Me on Canaan's Happy Shore? Well, that becomes a little more familiar. becomes very familiar when you remember the chorus of that old hymn, Glory, Glory, Hallelujah. Well, during the Civil War, that old revivalist hymn was taken by the soldiers and almost in mockery and black humor, they gave it new words about the abolitionist John Brown who had been killed trying to take over a federal installation at Harper's Ferry. You're getting a lot of American history today. I apologize to the Canadians. But the American soldiers, as they marched, they liked to sing together. And what did they sing? They always sang hymns. But sometimes they gave them kind of raucous or off-color new versions and as they sang about john brown they took the words of the old hymn and they gave it new words and they said john brown's body lies a moldering in the grave but his truth keeps marching on now they tried to stop that that's blasphemous the officers tried to quit but the men loved that song they marched and sang about john brown's moldering body in the grave and it got out into the public and a little lady julia ward howe who was an abolitionist, very educated. Her husband was like uh, a leading expert in the U.S. in education of blind and, and visually impaired people. Well, she was also a strong Christian. And one night in the middle of the night, the black of the night, she woke up. It was dark. She couldn't see her hand in front of her face. And she began to think about the words, John Brown's body lies moldering in the grave, but his truth keeps marching on and as she thought about it and prayed about it it's like she said it's like god gave her new words for the old hymn that spoke of the trouble in the u.s and that poem that she composed became the battle hymn of the republic glory glory hallelujah that we all know today and the first verse it uses directly from scripture the biblical imagery of the wrath of god expressed in the wine press, crushing the grapes of human sinfulness. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He hath trampled out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. It's powerful. Secular people say, where did she get that? That's, that's powerful. It's straight out of Scripture. 
Straight out of Scripture. Well, people today, if they don't know the battle hymn of the Republic, they're more familiar with the grapes of wrath. That's not in the Bible. That's from John Steinbeck. Do you remember John Steinbeck's novel about the Depression? (laughs) We from Oklahoma, we Okies actually do because that was our story. In 1939, the California author John Steinbeck visiting the camps of the displaced people of the Dust Bowl, the Okies, and the harsh conditions and how they were taken advantage of, he wrote that incredible book, which was the foundation not only of the Pulitzer Prize, but eventually he was awarded the Nobel Prize largely on the basis of the grapes of wrath. I'm not even going to ask if you've read it or heard it or seen the movie because that might break my heart because this is the story of Okies. And it follows the Jode family who've who've lost their farm and their youngest son, Tom Jode, comes home from prison in in, in Salisaw and McAllister and the family's gone. The farm has been repossessed and in a last-ditch effort, to save their lives, they go down the mother road, Route 66, to California looking for a better life. My family did that. Not in 1939, but 1969. We hauled the U-Haul behind the Pontiac Catalina. In Canada, they're called Parisians. But uh, we hauled all the family. In the back seat were four kids and two Siamese cats. And, and we made it through many adventures and breakdowns and it's an, it would have made a good movie, but it would have been a comedy more like a uh, National Lampoon's family vacation movie. But, you know, The Grapes of Wrath was a tragic story. And again, it used that biblical imagery of God's wrath. Because in The Grapes of Wrath, you see sin, man's inhumanity to man, highlighted. But this morning, friends, in the time remaining, we're going to touch on God's Word. Not a famous hymn that references it. Not a movie that steals the image for its title. But the Word of God as we speak about the grapes of wrath. Because the grapes of wrath, friends, reference the great and terrible day of the Lord. The day of God's wrath that is coming. Now we referenced it a couple weeks ago as we were looking at Jesus' name for himself. I am the vine, you are the branches. We said Jesus is the vine unless you're finding your spiritual life as a branch connected to Jesus through faith. You're part of the, the great vine of the world that will one day be harvested. And that's a passage I want to reference today because the image of the grapes of wrath in Scripture comes to its fulfillment in the book of Revelation. If you have your Bible with me, open it to Revelation chapter 14. We'll begin reading in verse 14. In this image, you see Jesus, the Son of Man, with a golden sickle to harvest the grapes of wrath. All of the people, all of the deeds, all of the sin that has gone unpunished for all mankind, finally there's a judgment day. We begin reading God's Word. John the Apostle writes, I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. 
Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. It continues on. It's not on the screen, but it says they were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and the blood flowed out of the press, rising to the height of a horse's bridle. It's an amazing and terrifying scene of God's judgment on the earth. A judgment, it seems, that will never arrive. How long will the evil triumph? How long will sin go unpunished? We often despair, friends, as we look around us in our own lives and the, the news at night that sin will never go unpunished. Never, sin will always go unpunished, that people will get away with it, that there will be no justice in our lives. We may not see it, but it is coming. The Bible says one day when it's ripe, it will all be judged. And God's wrath on sin will come about. Now, when we use that term, the wrath of God, we become very uncomfortable with it because we feel that we are becoming those type of people that non-Christians point at and mock. You guys, you you holier-than-thou people who are all about God's judgment on the lost and looking down at others. But that's not it at all. When we look at the story of sin and punishment, we see ourselves in the story. We understand that we are sinners like everyone else. We've experienced forgiveness through faith in Christ, but we understand this is our story as Adam's helpless race, like everyone else. But let's look at the teaching of the wrath of God, because without it, we couldn't have justice. Without it, we couldn't have even experienced love in a meaningful way. The first point we want to make today is that the nature of God's wrath is righteous. I choose that word carefully, righteous, because in the ancient world, they felt the gods were angry often. When there was a storm, the gods are angry. When there's a tragedy, a plague, a disease, it's gods are angry. They're punishing, they're upset. And they reflected upon the imaginary gods, human anger. And we know human anger is often unjust and sinful in and of itself. It's very difficult to follow the biblical injunction to be angry and yet not sin because human anger is so often based in hurt pride and selfishness. But God's wrath is very different. God's wrath is not like the ancient conception of the gods who their wrath was often capricious. It was often fickled and spiteful and made no sense to us was unfair, and it was unjust because the wrath of God is righteous. And it's based on His own nature, His holiness, His goodness, and His truth. The wrath of God is seen as only being on unrighteousness, sinfulness, anything that takes us out of God's good and perfect will for us. Sin is separation. 
The definition of death is separation. I've often said it. Physical death is the separation of the spirit from the body. Spiritual death is separation of our soul from God. God in whom alone is life and light and truth and goodness and joy. When you're separated from God, there's nothing left from you, nothing left for you, but darkness, hopelessness, pain and suffering. That's built in. The sin has its punishment built into it. Psalm 34, speaking of the righteousness of God's wrath. We read that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are attentive to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. We know that the wrath of God is on evil, on sinfulness. And that point is brought out further and throughout Scripture that the object of God's wrath is sin. We often see it as sinners, but that old phrase holds true in Scripture. God loves sinners. Jesus died for sinners. It's the sin that separates us from Him that God hates. The object of God's wrath is sin. Paul writing to the church in Rome, laying out his theology, he made this point so clearly. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and following, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, the divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Mine eyes have seen the glory. <laughs> Look to the mountains. We had a chance to visit the mountains this last week, go up to Banff and just seeing the beauty of God's creation. You see it everywhere from the smallest wildflower on the prairies to the majestic, seemingly eternal, unmovable mountains. You get a glimpse of God's nature, His, who He is. You see His fingerprint at work. It's incredible. We have no excuse. When we choose sin and selfishness and fall short of the glory of God, that becomes what God's wrath is upon. Anything that takes us out of God's nature, His truth, His holiness, His beauty, and choosing to sin, choosing self before God, always has done that. Adam's helpless race. From the decision of Adam and Eve to today, we choose. We choose wrongly. If the object of God's wrath is sin, punishment of it is guaranteed. The day of God's wrath is guaranteed. The harvest is coming. And if it wasn't, God could not be just. People sometimes, when we look at crime and punishment, they say, well, we have to have a philosophy of crime and punishment incarceration, and so forth. We call it our justice system. What's that based on? Sometimes we get way off course when it comes to that. God's justice has been described as 
retributive justice. That is, there is a standard. There's a measuring stick. There is true. There is right. There is good. And breaking that and moving away from that, you now fall into the area of lies, evil, sinful actions, immoral behavior. You break God's righteous rule and command something's broken. It needs to be set right. Retributive justice says that for it to be truly just, wrong actions must be punished. Good actions, righteous actions, should be rewarded. In our heart of hearts, humans understand this. We didn't invent it. It's based in the nature of God. Truth and goodness must win out. Falsehood, lies, sin must be set right. It must be punished. The evil must not be overlooked, swept under the carpet, can't be got away with. The day of God's wrath is a guarantee. The broad road leads to destruction. Scripture is very clear. The day of God's wrath is going to come and it will take the world by surprise. No matter how many preachers there are on the radio, no matter how many doomsday prophets carry signs that say the end is near, it will take the world off guard. Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. The day is coming and it will be a surprise. Paul, again, writing in his uh, wonderfully thought-out letter to the church in Rome, writes in Romans chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. He says, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when His righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. Retributive justice. We earn our punishment or our reward. Anything else, human nature, we understand is unjust, is unfair. And God is anything but unfair. We earn, we earn what we receive. In fact, we all know that we've all earned an eternal separation from God. That the wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. There's not a single one of us here that can stand in the presence of a holy God. We understand that. The satisfaction of God's wrath, the payment of that debt, is death and separation. It would seem with this in mind that there could be no hope and apart from Jesus, there is no hope. Because Scripture reveals the good news. The good news is that a holy God, whose nature demands justice, is also a loving God, whose nature offers us grace through Jesus, His Son. 
We were given the law to understand we were sinners. We needed to understand we were sinners before we knew our need for a Savior and could understand the depths of Jesus' love, what He received in our place. For friends, when a debt is incurred, it must be paid. It must be satisfied. And the satisfaction of God's wrath is the cross. We sing in the chorus, in the cross that Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That's a true biblical statement. The satisfaction of God's wrath was on the cross. Where Jesus, the only sinless one, Son of God and the Son of Man, in your place, took your sin and mine to the cross and satisfied our debt. He paid it in full as he cried out with his dying words, It is finished. That sacrificial, atoning, substitutionary death of Jesus, it was prophesied 700 years before Jesus' birth. The prophet Isaiah, writing of the suffering servant Jesus, said in Isaiah 53, But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His wounds we are healed. Jesus, He gives us hope. Once again, Paul writing in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. We read in Romans chapter 1, or rather Romans chapter 5. I'm skipping ahead. Romans chapter 5 we read. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? Of course, speaking of Jesus and His death for us. For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of the Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Through Jesus. We've been reconciled. The debt has been paid. It's been paid and we have been restored to right standing. Not of our own, but of Jesus. It's not our righteousness. We needed the righteousness of another one. It's from Jesus. And if the satisfaction of God's wrath was on the cross, how do we access that? He died on the cross 2,000 years ago, but mankind goes on its happily sinful way, getting worse, it seems, as the generations go by. How can there be hope for us to access what Jesus did for us all those years ago? How do we find deliverance from God's wrath if it's been paid for? Well, the deliverance of God's wrath can only be found in faith in Christ. It's through putting our faith in Jesus, confessing our sins to Him, asking Him to apply to us what He did on the cross. It's only through faith in Jesus. <laughs> Jesus Himself, they see in John chapter 3, puts it so clearly. John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. 
But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. We are objects of God's wrath because of our sinfulness. And we remain there until we give our hearts to Jesus. Turn to Him as our Lord and as our Savior. We need His righteousness. For ours is like filthy rags in God's sight. We finish by looking at Romans chapter 1 once again, verse 18 and following. Speaking of the righteousness that comes to us through faith in Jesus. Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentiles. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. There's our righteousness. We're delivered from the wrath of God because Jesus took our place on the cross. He satisfied the debt. He paid it in full. And now we receive the benefit of the life and righteousness of Jesus. When God looks at you, He sees you in Christ. He sees you clean, forgiven, adopted into His very family because of Jesus. His great love for us was revealed when He took our punishment. The only innocent one, the suffering servant, took your place. And now through putting your faith in Him, you can live a new life as Christ lives in us. We, of all people, have the ability to say no to sin. It no longer binds us in chains of sin and death, that ongoing cycle. We've been set free. And so, friends, is it any wonder that as often as we gather at the Lord's table, we celebrate our deliverance, our deliverance from God's just, righteous, and holy wrath against the poison of sin that would destroy His beloved people on this earth that sends us to a godless eternity. Friends, we need to celebrate God's love and what He's done for us. And be willing to share the good news and the hope we have and the righteousness that has been gifted to us to live it out and to show a hurting world around us. Let these thoughts percolate and dwell in our hearts as we come together to the table of the Lord. As we do that, I'll call upon those who will serve this morning. Let's come to the Lord's table in prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to your word and see that amazing and powerful passage, Father, of the wrath of God. Lord, we know the great and terrible day of the Lord is a guarantee that it is coming. Lord, we know that even now, as Jesus intercedes on our behalf at the Father's right hand, that near at hand there is a great sickle that is prepared to harvest the earth. Lord, we know that there is a white horse that stands bridled and ready 
for the return of Christ. Lord, we know that even at this moment, there is a great angel holding a trumpet, his eyes on the Father who will give the word for that trumpet to sound. Lord, we know that day is coming. Lord, let us not live our lives as if it will not arrive, but live our lives with urgency as well as hope. Hope, Lord, that the wrath of God has been taken by Jesus. It has been paid for. That We are under the blood of Christ. We are saved. But Lord, so many more, so many more in this world don't know Jesus. Lord, they are objects of wrath because they still carry their sin. And the punishment of their sin is assured. That eternal separation will never end. There will be no way back. And so, Father, may we, as Jesus did, may we labor in Your vineyard from morning till night. May it become, Lord, what we are about and the mission that we are on. And Father, in times like this, as we gather together around Your Word and at Your table as Jesus invites us, may we be reminded of the high cost of sin and self. Not only in separating people from You, but Lord, the price that Jesus in His love was willing to pay for our salvation. Lord, as we commit ourselves fresh and new to You, bring to mind anything that would keep us from meeting You at this table. For You've promised if we confess our sins, You are faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We trust you for that. We pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The Apostle Paul writing a corrective passage to the church in Corinth who to their communion time, they did it as part of a church meal, sort of a potluck, sort of a love feast, but it seems that they weren't sharing the pot too well. That those who brought much, they got full and the poor got very little. And so Paul, in correcting them, told them to set aside those things that divide them and focus on what unites us. And that is the elements of the Lord's table. He had them pare it down and focus on two things, the bread and the cup, which Jesus, at that Passover meal, a symbolic meal, gave new meaning and symbolism. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. As we share together the bread, I'll call upon Mark to give thanks for it. Dear God, thank you for this day. Thank you for the first Sunday of the month to sit here with the bread and to give thanks to you. And it's just a reminder, as Pastor Ed preached here today, that the body that was uh, put on the cross to forgive our sins 
for we could have everlasting life. Amen. God's word tells us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This time... We'll share the cup, but before we do, I'll call upon Vern to give thanks for the cup. Thank, <clears throat> thank you, holy God, for dying on the cross, shedding your blood for us, for me. Mm-hmm. It is just amazing that you lived in heaven's glory and you came down to earth just because of us. And Lord, thank you for this reminder of your shed blood. Amen.
the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Amen. Friends, stand with me now as we're dismissed in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for you are a holy God. You are a just God. You are a loving God. And you are a gracious God. Lord, we thank you that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to you but by him. For Jesus satisfied your holy wrath and took the punishment for our sin and paid it in full. Lord, we thank you that through faith in Jesus, we have new life in Christ. And Lord, may we leave this place of worship to our places of life and ministry and take the love and good news of Jesus with us. May we speak it with our words, live it with our lives. Father, this is our prayer. We pray it in Christ's precious name. Amen. God bless and keep you.